0: As the Zika virus continues to spread in the Americas, evidence has been mounting that it can cause Gambare syndrome in infected patients and microcephaly in unborn babies. Drawing lessons from the Ebola epidemic, global health leaders have urged swift action to try to slow the virus's spread and prevent complications associated with infection. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lindsay Baden, director of clinical research in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a deputy editor of the journal. Dr. Baden, what's the current state of the Zika virus outbreak? Where's the virus spreading fastest? And what are the biggest concerns as we move into the summer months? So Zika virus, as you allude to, is mosquito-borne, particularly the Aedes mosquito.
1: And so that has led to explosive transmission over the last year. About a year ago, it arrived in Brazil, April of 2015. And over the course of the last 12 months, millions of infections have occurred across the Americas and the Caribbean. And the anticipated spread will follow this vector. How that will spread in the U.S. in part will depend on the mosquito behavior, importation of the virus in individuals who are infected, and then potential forward transmission domestically. It is difficult to predict where it will occur next or how it will spread once it arrives, but likely the mosquito behavior and our behavior in interacting with the mosquito will dictate further transmission and infection events. Things such as air conditioning in the summer that keep us indoors, things such as mosquito repellent will diminish potential exposure. So there are many factors that will modulate further
0: spread. In terms of the epidemic, how has the international response been informed by what was done both right and wrong in the Ebola epidemic? These types of events, when they
1: occur, are unique to each event, and Zika is very different than Ebola. But you're correct that there are lessons learned with Ebola that have been applied to Zika that I think have been quite helpful, including recognizing this event earlier and engaging global public health resources earlier than occurred with Ebola. And I think that's a very important element to guide a response. What has been occurring over the last two months, since this is still a relatively new epidemic, has been the generation of a tremendous amount of data to begin to understand the diseases that Zika causes, any specific aspects of its transmission, so that we can then inform the public and also develop public health interventions. So I think one of the lessons that is quite important, and I think we've benefited from this time, has been a swifter action to recognize that this is an issue and then to begin to develop the investigative epidemiology
0: evidence base to guide response. Zika virus was first identified in the 1940s and in recent years it's caused a number of outbreaks. Why is it only now that the virus is being associated with neurologic complications?
1: Fascinating question, and one that is not easy to answer. If we talk about microcephaly, teratogenicity, the event rate has to be high enough to begin to make the association. And prior epidemics, such as on Yap Island, had still a modest number of cases compared to what went on in Brazil in late 2015. And currently going on there now in other parts of South America and the Caribbean. And when you have a large enough volume of cases, you're then able to see less common manifestations of infections such as teratogenicity and such as neurologic complications such as Guillain-Barre, which is associated with a variety of infectious diseases. It's not unique to Zika. Campylobacter, bacterial infections, cause of diarrhea is associated with Guillain-Barre, as well as many other infections. So this is not a unique complication of Zika virus, which further complicates the ability to determine Zika virus as a cause in the context of a background rate. But I think that in the last six months, given the number of cases of Zika virus that have occurred... The ability to see and define less common clinical sequelae
0: has been enabled, unfortunately. In a recent Perspective article, Hoag and colleagues discussed the challenges involved in testing for Zika, given the lack of standardized diagnostic tests and the similarity of the virus to other flaviviruses. How are global health systems managing those challenges? I think this is another
1: aspect of an emerging infectious disease that we dealt with with Ebola, with chikungunya as it spread, with Zika that is spreading currently. When a pathogen emerges, the diagnostics associated with detecting cases and determining who's infected or who's ill from it may not be well developed. There are thousands of microorganisms out there that can cause human disease, most of which will not. So we cannot develop diagnostics for every known potential pathogen on the planet. So then when an organism such as Zika explosively is transmitted and causes a substantial amount of human disease, as is occurring over the last several months the diagnostic platform to determine who's infected has to emerge. And with Zika virus, what gets complicated is the serologies have cross-reaction across the flaviviruses, such as dengue, a yellow fever. And the molecular tests, such as using PCR, require some validation to understand the kinetics of positivity. And so all that we go through to determine how well a new diagnostic works has to be telescoped over the last couple of months because there now is a need for this type of diagnostic in the clinic. And then to scale up to point-of-care environments where it's not just available in a reference laboratory, but in state laboratories and hospital laboratories, in clinics where patients are seen, that also requires further technologic refinement. And this is a process that we saw with Ebola that we are seeing with Zika and hopefully as technology platforms advance, We can do this more quickly in the future, but it forever will be a challenge when a new organism emerges, how do we scale up the diagnostics in a reliable fashion?
0: And two, what about treatment and vaccine? What's the state of those
1: projects? So now that Zika has emerged as a significant cause of human disease, the need to develop countermeasures has also been identified, but that will take some time. And so there are vaccine platforms that will be applied to this organism. But that will take years or months to years to develop the immunogens, have preclinical and clinical testing, so that the interest in that is high, but the field is nascent and will be accelerated hopefully over the coming months, but is at least months away, if not longer.
0: You mentioned air conditioning and mosquito repellent. Hogan colleagues write that there's no evidence that recent vector control interventions have had any significant impact on transmission of dengue. What can health systems do in the face of that?
1: This is a challenge as to where there's evidence, which can often be very challenging to develop, such as vector avoidance, particularly in endemic areas where one can't avoid a mosquito, versus understanding the biology of the transmission And then applying that to your environment. For the most part, one cannot get Zika virus infection without being bitten by an infected mosquito, for the most part. So therefore, how to diminish exposure to the vector is critical. That becomes very difficult if one is in an equatorial environment without air conditioning and must be outdoors as to how one is able to intervene in a way that prevents vector exposure. But these are the kinds of questions that will need to be studied and better defined. And I suspect in a temperate environment, it's a different challenge than an equatorial environment
0: in terms of vector avoidance. Speaking of that difference, some countries, equatorial countries, where Zika virus is circulating have advised women to avoid getting pregnant until the virus is brought under control. Do you think we're ever going to see that kind of recommendation in the United States? I think that type of recommendation is very difficult to know what to do with. I think
1: that the teratogenic risk or the risk to the fetus is likely greatest earlier in pregnancy and is likely greatest if acute Zika virus infection occurs, let's say, at the end of first trimester, beginning of second trimester of pregnancy. Therefore, minimizing that occurrence is prudent, but not easy to implement or guide. I think it makes sense to provide information to the community to be aware of these issues. But in terms of family planning, that's a very complex discussion and very
0: personal. Finally, the recent Ebola, Zika, and chikungunya outbreaks have sparked fears that urbanization, globalization are going to increase the spread of viruses that were once essentially confined to remote areas. What are public health officials looking for as they try to prepare for the next big outbreak?
1: I think that with the airplane and rapid travel across the globe, we are all connected. And we need to look at the global environment and public health with that in mind. You know, Influenza should remind us of that every year. That's an age-old pathogen, but new pathogens will emerge as well, and we need to be alert to this. We need to set up strategies to diagnose and identify as early as possible so we can understand which of the organisms we identify have a larger global health risk than others and then determine how to develop countermeasures. But I think that we are in a global economy, we are in a global community, and infectious diseases will follow that pattern, and we have to look at it together globally. Thank you, Dr. Baden.